0: And welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Yardina Osband, here with my friend in Chavruta, Ann Gordon. Our daft today, Masachat Tzuka, daft, page three. Well, we are on our second day of Masachat I know that we have not officially celebrated yet our Siam on Masachat Yuma, which, um, but uh, there's a lot that's on this daft, and these are nice, long, enriched rich uh, so we'll get straight to it. Um, there is one thing I want to start with here, which really begins with the yesterday's um, which was also very long, and we just didn't get to everything, which is this interesting story about Helene Halmalka um, and her sukkah that was in uh, load and whether or not it was sort of a very, very tall sukkah. And the goes through a pretty elaborate description of what seems to be this nice, big sukkah, and she had these seven sons. And, you know, were the sons allowed to be there? Maybe they were exempt from sukkah or women exempt from sukkah. So it's an interesting story on many levels because it starts to get into, first of all, this idea of having a sukkah that might have been built out of the uh, halachic requirements for kosher sukkah. Second, it starts to hint to who is required to eat in the sukkah and gets into the uh, some of the discussion around women and children, and particularly children who are no longer nursing or dependent on their mothers. So in other words, they are obligated to eat in the sukkah. Um, and so I, I partially love this passage because it's introducing all of these halachot, but it's through a story without, you know, it's the first time we're hearing about it. It's on Daf Bet and continuing into Daf Gimel, but it's without formally introducing the halakha around it. There will be a mishnah later that we'll talk about some of these things, but it's interesting how the Gemara sort of just starts talking about it. Like there's an assumption of knowledge um, of some of these halachot. Um, but I just wanted to do a quick who's who of who she is. Um, and, you know, Helene Almaka. there are a bunch of Gemaras that basically uh, that, that, that do discuss her. Um, and she's mentioned in Josephus as well. So in other words, the source material for her is in the Gemara and also is in uh, Josephus. Um, and we did actually see her in Masachal Yuma as well. She'll be mentioned again in, uh, in Bavabatra. Batra. Um, but the thing to know about her is, is that she was not actually, a, she was not born Jewish um, and that she later converted to Judaism. Historians say probably around the year, you know, 30 CE. So this would be, you know, sort of the end of uh, of the second Beit Hamidash around that time. Um, and so that's why it's significant that you sort of had this non-Jewish, uh, you know, born non-Jewish queen who eventually... Uh, did become, who did become queen. Um, and so I think that's why when they use her as a model that the assumption is is that she sort of was keeping halacha the right way or that the rabbis sort of endorsed what she did recognize why that's so significant, right? Because we're dealing with somebody in power who was not born Jewish, who converted. And so when the Gemara tells us that the rabbis, you know, agree, you know, sort of supported the type of sukkah she had, that actually is a very significant statement on the part of Chazal. That's not something to just, you know, sort of overlook. They had every reason to sort of reject her. And it shows that they sort of fully, um, you know, sort of fully, um, uh, that they fully accepted her and that she was very, you know, really committed to halakha. And so you'll see in Nazir, there's going to be a very famous Gemara that talks about that she actually became a Nazir when her when one of her children had to uh, to go to war. So she's really um, considered to sort of be a very devout convert. And I think we see that here because she's part of a halachic discussion. And I think that shows a certain openness to Chazal to, to the convert.
1: Um, it also shows uh, an openness to the woman, right? There's a discussion, the discussion of it being You know what's fit for a queen, as opposed to only talking about, let's say, what's fit for a king, is also an interesting, I don't want to call it a twist, but it's interesting. So I want to talk about something that's taking up the bulk of Amud Aleph, which is a discussion over whether there is a machloket between Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai, which framing of that is already, I think, interesting, because usually we know there's a machloket between Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai. And the question is, You know, is there a machloket? And if there is, what it's about? So I want to start at the end, because the end kind of gives us the summary and the conclusion of, or a resolution of this discussion. Um, It's, the end begins, the end of this whole question begins, le'olam betarte plige. The conversation says, actually, they really do disagree. And what they disagree about is two specific issues. Plige b'suka k'tana, or plige b'suka And this is, you know, this has been the running discussion. What is their what is their dispute? And could it be this or could it be that? So the end the conclusion here is, oh, in fact, it's about both or each separately, right? They disagree with regard to what the minimum measurement is going to be for a small sukkah, and they disagree with regard to where one could sit in a large sukkah, a very large sukkah being where the question is going to be um what part of it is or is all of it really considered the sukkah. The chesurim mechsara. Now, this is something we haven't talked about in a very long time, but we did talk about it once upon a time. Chisurei mechsara means there's a lap or lacuna even in the text. It means that somewhere in the Mishnah, some words were not there that were necessary to be there to make full sense of the positions that are supposed to be presented in the Mishnah. And it's the Gemara's emendations of itself, basically, I would say, of, or of the Mishnah, right? That so the Mishnah is incomplete. And that's what chaser, chaser means lacking. Chisuri mechser, Something is lacking. And this is what it should have said. This is what needed to be have been learned in the Mishnah. So we're going to talk first about the small sukkah, where a person whose most of his, his head and most of his body is in the sukkah, but his table is in his house. And if you... I have spent any time in any kind of small apartment setting. This is not as crazy as it sounds, right? That the that you can keep your body in the sukkah, but most of the table would be in the, inside the house because the sukkah is just that small. Um, so Beit Hill will say, well, yes, in this case, he will fulfill the obligation of of the mitzvah of sukkah. And Beit Chaim says he does not. And then the the gemara here goes on. So the second case, which again, Bithil here comes down, I would say, I want to say he's more mekil, but it's really being, you know, machmir in the in the hopes of getting him to be able to fulfill this, or maybe it's mekil in the hopes of getting him to be able to fulfill the mitzvah sukkah. So the second case is a sukkah it only takes roshov bilvad. There's no table in the sukkah at all, right? In that case, Bithil says that kind of sukkah is not a kosher sukkah at all to begin with. And Beit Hillel says it is a kosher sukkah. So there's, so the angle here is, you know, on the one hand, in the first case is the person, does it? the person fulfill the obligation? And the second case is, is what you have there a sukkah? Um, which is, a, you know, again, a different kind of way of looking at exactly this kind of thing. So that I think I, I, we're going to come back to this. Look at Beit Hillel and Beit Chama, you know, they, the same way that they've been our prominent um, disputants all the way through, they are still, and and the question of what you call a sukkah and whether one is going to be able to fulfill one's mitzvah, one's mitzvah and obligation in in keeping sukkah, I you know it doesn't surprise us that Beit Shammah is more machmir, more stringent, and and Beit Hillel is more accommodating. The next bit of the Gemara, I find to be fascinating. Beyond this, beyond their machloket, we get to a Question, which I keep saying, I keep calling it the house that is not a house, meaning independent of the discussion of sukkah, or I would, I, I want to say it's independent of the discussion. I think the Gemara, you know, right after this is going to put them together. That's why it's brought here. It's not really independent. In the context of the above discussion, meaning the one that we were just talking about, so then they want to know, the Gemara asks, who taught? what the sages taught, namely, al if you have a house that is so tiny that it is not even dalit amot by dalit amot. So again, if we say four amot is six to eight feet, you know, now in this era of minimalism, I think, and there, there's a phenomenon of tiny houses, right? So I, I don't know how, how tiny the tiny houses get, but we're talking here six to eight feet by six to eight feet, which is, Tiny, and I say this as somebody who is not five feet tall, but still, that is a tiny house. Patur, well, actually, it's not a house. That's that's what I'm. That's what the Gemara tries to say here, right? Patur mina <speaking> mezuzah u'minamaka ve'eno mitzamei negaim ve'eno nachli b'vatei arei chuma ve'eno chuzrin lof marchem <Hebrew> milchama ve'eno arvin ma arvinbo ve'eno mishtavinbo ve'eno benichimbo eruv. There are all kinds of halachas that we don't really think about much, I don't think, in the context of what does it take to have a house. I think everybody thinks about putting up a mezuzah. I think some people who have the right kind of roof will worry about putting up a fence on the roof, um, a parapet, right, to make sure that there's some kind of protection against somebody falling off the roof. But then it goes on. There's other examples here of laws that pertain to a house, specifically whether a house can get leprosy, Leprosy is not the right word here. I'm sorry. I'm. I've got the English translation next to me as well. It's the um, sarat right? Can a house get sarat And can a house, um, when you sell it, within the context of selling houses within walled cities? So this is a whole big discussion over what can be bought back. And we're not going to. And and what happens during a yovel, a jubilee year? We're not going to get into it right now. But the point is that another halacha that pertains to a house being a house. And then it goes on, and you don't give this tiny little structure. Um, You're not obligated to to give it back if you have soldiers or waging war where they would return all the houses. They don't return this one. And you don't use it to join together for an Eruv. And you don't use it as a place to put your Eruv in the event that you're going to use it as a place to put an Eruv. Meaning... It's not considered a place, barely. I guess technically it is a makom It is technically a place, but it is not technically a house. And the implications of that for, it's not just for sukkah, right? There is a context of a structure here that is truly supposed to be, I don't know, residential. And the answer is, you could live there, but the thing that you're living in does not have a halachic name of bayit. It is not going to be
0: called a house. So, uh, you know, I think it's interesting where the Gemara shifts here because, and like a Reuven, a Reuven started with a discussion about a creation of a type of halachic space. And so it immediately wanted to draw some parallels to Sukkah, which is another type of creation of halachic space. But here I think the Gemara is doing something a little bit more interesting here because what they're trying to underscore here is that a Sukkah, while it is a halachic space, also is considered to be, you know, a temporary house. And a house is not a halachic space. But yet what the Gemara does here is, well, what this bresa does here at least is, it sort of goes through by saying, if you have a space that sort of doesn't really make sense to say, or it's too small to say that it's actually a house, meaning someone couldn't really live there and say, this is my residence, right? Although I do want to think about something like a tent, but I guess a tent we would just say is also, you know, temporary. So then it's sort of bringing in all the other halakhot, not halakhot of, you know, about whether it's a kosher space or not a kosher space, or does the space fit into the halakhot creation of space, but other halakhot that revolve around space. Is that clear what I'm saying, Anne? I'm not sure I said that totally clearly. I think so. I, I think so. And I think two categories, we have categories of, Things that create a type of halachic space, right? That because you construct walls a certain height or you put a beam a certain way, right? It makes something that has a halachic significance and solves and can be used in a halachic way. Whether for Erev it is now you can carry for sukkah and fulfill the mitzvah of sukkah. Then we have a series of halachot that revolve around houses, right? putting up a mezuzah, being allowed to return from war because you built a new house. And so now we're saying, what spaces do do those mitzvot not apply to anymore? So there's sort of more like two categories here of where space is important.
1: Yeah, and I think how we relate to space. You know, I'm laughing a little bit. Shortly before we came to record, I read an article that a friend of mine sent me about real estate in Israel. And you know, the prices are jumping and things like that. And it's, you know, what do you think that you need in a home? What do you think you need in a residence? And here we are, you know, here's the Gemara talking about the alachut of what it takes to be a residence. And I think, dina in addition to all the other things, we're talking about a sukkah, whatever, it's a season of going camping and things like that. And I feel like this is part of that question. Could you what if you lived in a tent as your permanent address? Would it you know, does that change anything? This Gemara implies no, right? This Gemara says the structure has to count as a house, regardless of how long you're there, regardless of how permanently you treat it. I wonder if that's true in the in a bigger in a bigger picture. Um you know, it's a, something to just to think about as we go forward,
0: right. And so then what happens here, in I would is I think it's appropriate that they spend this time to really go through this, you know, this bryce so well. Because if we're already talking about sort of space and halachic space, now it really wants to sort of understand, OK, why is it that these halachot don't apply to certain spaces and, and in specific a space that's less than four by four remote? So some of the things the Gemara mentions here is the mezuzah, uh, the, you know, needing to put a, um, you know, a, what's like a fence around the roof so somebody wouldn't fall off. Uh, you know, re, you know, uh, Tuma with with leprosy, right? Or that, you know, it's considered a house when we talk about a sale of walled cities and things like that. That's because specifically the word bayit is used in those halachot in the Torah. And something that we would not consider to be a house. But again, this also gets into something that I mentioned yesterday, which is the interplay between Torah Shebechtav and Torah Shebechtav. All the Torah says is it uses comes to say, okay, what is the, what is a buy? We're going to define that as an Arba by Arba Amot house, right? Um, and, you know, so th- I, I think that's why it's significant that they really sort of go through this entire. What I look at this is, is that these beginning dapim are a deconstruction of space. You know, what does it mean to build a sukkah? What does it mean to have space that that is a halachic house and needs, and therefore involves another series of mitzvot. This really is a discussion of space. And if (coughs) I wanna make this meta, then I need to think a little bit What that mean in terms of the mitzvah of sukkah itself, right? That I think sukkah is, is a time where our sense of space, permanency, and things like that really changes, right? We somehow give ourselves over to living in a space that these laws would not apply to at all. But yet that's what we're supposed to do for seven days.
1: Um, I think most Sukkot are of the size that would count to be, not all, for sure not, that's correct, that's exactly of course the they are,
0: but, but, but you wouldn't, but you're not obligated, that's what's interesting, and I should have said that more explicitly, most of them are all more than arba by, our by, are by modes, but many of them are, I shouldn't say all, but yet these laws don't apply to them,
1: Right, right, because there's other factors. It's not just size. It's not, which, just of size. course, exactly. Which, of course, exact it brings into you know re- sharp relief the it's going to be an ongoing discussion. I'm sure. What is the nature of sukkah? That on the one hand it's like a house, and on the other hand, it's also really not like a house. You know, I'm I. There's plenty to unpack. We're only on the second page.
0: Right, so I guess the question I'll leave us with before we wrap up is, is that, right, is this an issue of construction and size or is there also an element of intent? And I think with Sukkah, we're seeing it's both, right? It's construction and size, but also there's an element of intent, right? Just because it's the size that a house could be, but your intent is for something very different.
1: Um, I think also we have, I think... Let's hold. Let's table this discussion. Um, American tabling, as opposed to British tabling, which means to call it into a discussion. Let's put it aside for the time being, because I think we have many more factors that make a sukkah a including things like schach, right? Where we're not, we're not there we're yet. We're going to get into that also.
0: Yes, for sure. But I, but at least for now, that's what I'm thinking about. Here is going on a little bit with space. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Bring us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadrian website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.